Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It'll be a wonderful show today. I can hardly wait to get a chance to talk to some outstanding guests, and I'm glad that we can spend this time together. I hope your week has been good, and now we're coming up on a weekend, and I'm just loving the fact that we've had a great week of uh, broadcasting together, and I'm excited for today. And if you're interested in uh, voting uh, coming up in this election, you're going to love my next guest, Dr. Bruce Ashford. He is uh, an author and a brilliant mind and uh, a communicator. He's written letters to an American Christian, One Nation Under God, um, but he's also written a, a book for surviving the election season. It's a short booklet with only t- with 10 tips for Christians who might need a little help during the upcoming election cycle, me being one. So I'm awfully glad to talk to Bruce again. Bruce, welcome. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thank you. So I love uh, practical books. I love uh, I love shorter books because I'm not a huge reader, so I can sit down with a, a short ebook and get through it in a night, and I'm very happy, and I'll be looking forward to doing that with this book, How to Survive an Election Season, 10 Tips for American Christians. So um, give us a little a sneak preview. Yeah, so the book is only 40 pages long. It's Perfect. got uh, 10 tips, you know, three to four pages per tip. It's available exclusively at LifeWay.com. And what I wanted to do is just say, listen, the last 10 to 15 years in American politics has been like a combination of a war, a uh, carnival, and a Hollywood movie, mm-hmm. a professional wrestling uh, event. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just been crazy. Uh-huh. And uh, how can we survive and even thrive in this election season from which things are going to be really nasty? You know, we're going to have uh, people acting out on their Facebook pages and acting out in public and Politicians are going to do their part and act out. So how can a Christian uh, kind of stand firm uh, in uh, our Christian beliefs and apply those to the political realm and win the day? And, Bruce, it's interesting because we're going to have disagreements with people we don't agree with, but we're also going to have disagreements with fellow Christians and family members and everything else. So we do need some pointers for sure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, this is especially difficult time. Some lines have been redrawn in recent years and some uh, you know, there's just a lot more that's up in the air right now, and uh, kind of an unsettling, uncertain time. And uh, yeah, so these ten tips are simple, and we can. Uh, I'll take your your cues and where where we want to start. Yeah, well, one of the things I love about this book, like you say, it's forty pages, and I think it's a couple bucks, so it's really a, a no brainer for Christians who want to get informed and want to uh, get some some great practical tips for surviving this election season because it is here, and it's a uh, uh, it's going to be very intense. Um, so maybe you would just uh, give us a couple of tips just to kind of tease us. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, the first one, the first tip is to remember that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And uh, the point there is that uh, to remember that we want to always be signaling to the people around us that our primary allegiance is to Christ, not necessarily a political party or a particular political leader. And I might be very actively involved in a particular party. I am the Republican Party and might be excited about this or that leader, 
But we have to find a way. So we don't want to be viewed as a hypocritical and bigoted special interest arm of a secular political party. And so we have to find ways of uh, showing that our primary allegiance is to Christ and our secondary and third allegiances to other organizations and leaders and so forth. And that means that sometimes we have to critique uh, a political leader in our own party or uh, a person and um, just to show that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, a second tip, and I'll, I'll uh, stop after the second one in terms of giving us uh, just sort of wetting our taste buds. The second tip is basically that uh, religion and politics cannot be separated. I mean, some people think they can, but they can't. Church and state should be kept separate, but religion and politics cannot. And what I mean by that is um, it is a good thing to separate church and state. We don't want to set the Roman Catholic uh, Church or the Presbyterian Church of America or the Assemblies of God or Southern Baptist Convention up over the government uh, because these religious bodies are called to do something different, not called to make public policy and to order people around politically. And vice versa, we don't want uh, the government to set itself up over the church, telling it what it can or cannot do. So there needs to be some separation. But in terms of religion and politics, those two things cannot be separated, because if you want to find somebody's religion, look for their God. If you want to find their God, look for the thing that they love, trust, and obey more than anything else. It might be Jesus. It might be sex or money or power. It might be the Allah of Muhammad. Whatever is actually on the throne of a person's heart, you know, the Bible says that the heart is the central organizer of the human life, that out of the heart flow all the issues of life. And that just means that whatever it is that we love, trust, and obey more than anything else, our God, is embraced in our heart, and it organizes everything else in life. It's going to radiate outward into everything, including our politics, our coffee shop conversations, our Facebook arguments. I wish we didn't have arguments on Facebook. Not a good place to have them. But anyway, whatever it is, whoever or whatever we worship is going to it's going to definitely affect our beliefs and actions in the political realm. We need to make sure that we don't have some false gods in our heart, like uh, uh, you know the self. We can worship ourselves. Be more concerned about proving our point and showing that we're right, or than we are representing Christ well. And so. We do want our religion, our Christian faith, to radiate outward into our politics, and we want to make sure that it genuinely is our Christian faith rather than some idol of ours that that radiates outward. Mm, so wise. So, Bruce, can you give me some coaching as to uh, information consumption as we're hearing, <clears throat> as we're seeing television, reading newspapers? How, yes. do, how do we process this, and what do we believe, and what are we influenced by? Yeah, so a uh, quick thing about news media right now is that the news the media in general have set aside their standards that they they tried to hold to for, you know, uh, more than a century here in America mm-hmm. and are now just in an uh, attempt to pander to their constituencies and make a lot of money. So uh, the news media use something called real-time tracking, and which means they track uh, when readers are on their website, listeners are on their radio shows, viewers are on their TV shows. And they know when you get on the show and when you get off, and they know what it is that they're able to analyze and know what it is that keeps you clicking, watching, or listening. And they know that there are two emotions that keep people tuned, and those two emotions are anger and fear. Mm. And so our media outlets are going to try to make you as angry and afraid as possible so that you will stay on their radio, TV, or website as 
long as possible so that they can make as much ad money as possible. That means that Christians need to have wisdom and discernment. That means we have to be especially careful, as a lot of Americans do, which is uh, listen to three-hour, four, five hours of uh, political talk radio in the afternoon, or watch two or three hours of political uh, commentary in the evenings. And it it becomes a fact that certain media outlets can shape our view of the world more than the Bible does, more than the church does. And that's a danger, especially if that particular outlet, if you think it's uh, that it's uh, you know on the right side, right? So I think we need to be uh, very careful to fill our minds with the Word of God more than we do uh, political commentary. The second thing is that it's very important, I think, to take our news from multiple different outlets that are the most – I don't know, trustworthy possible. I try to get news from across the spectrum on the left and the right. I try to discern between outlets that have gatekeepers, in other words, editors that, that try to uh, de- determine between whether or not uh, you know, opinion article is worth publishing, and you know, and pick that kind of website over just a startup website that five guys started with no accountability. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so. In other words, we want our scripture intake and genuinely smart Christian commentary to be greater than our imbibing of the national news media. And when we do watch the national news media, we want to watch several outlets and not just one would be my best advice. That's wonderful advice. And it's, I know it's important to, to hear what's being said. And when, you, when I hear a news story... I'm reluctant to even repeat it because I, how do I even know it's in fact true? Because I can't stand when I uh, repeat something that I hear that I go, well, I, I, I saw this in the Washington Post, so it must be true, or, you know, whatever, the Wall Street Journal. So they wouldn't lie, you know? <laughs> and, I, and I realize that uh, I got to just be really, really careful. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, we can get suckered so easily. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a lot of there's a lot of um, there have been news stories out there, uh, smart ones, good ones about what's called confirmation bias, mm-hmm. and that is that a lot of times we know what we want to believe to be true, and therefore we'll only trust outlets that confirm what we hope is true. Right. And I think that makes us especially ignorant, and we want to work against that or work against our confirmation bias by reading, you know, some commentators and and some people that might correct our view around uh, some of our views rather than merely confirming them. Yeah. All right, Dr. Bruce Ashford is my guest, and he's written a book called How to Survive an Election Season. It's a short book, 40 pages. It's 10 tips for American citizens. All you do is go to lifeway.com, and then you'll see a quantity. So you might want to go one or two or three, and you just click that little button that says Add to Cart, and then you uh, go to your cart, and you pay for it, and they send it to your house. It's a really good deal. This thing all works really, really well. We'll take a short break and be back with Bruce in just a minute. show. So glad to have Dr. Bruce Ashford as my guest. I'm a big fan of Bruce's writing, his work, his thinking, and we're so glad to have him talking about his new uh, book, booklet, I should say. It's called How to Survive an Election Season, 10 Tips for American Christians. 
You gave us a really nice tease with a couple of tips from the book, uh, Bruce. I'd love to get a couple more if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, we I think a, a good one to um, to talk about is love your neighbor, because there's a temptation in the political realm to say something like this: politics is inherently dirty, therefore it's okay for us to be dirty. Ooh. It's okay for us to kind of twist the truth a little bit to make the bad guys on the other side of the aisle look really bad. It's okay for us to overlook bad stuff on our side of the aisle to make our guys look good. Uh, but the Bible doesn't put it that way. The Bible says that every sphere of culture, not just politics, but marriage and family, you know, economics, sports and competition, arts and sciences, education, all of this, every sphere is corrupted by sin. But God never gives us permission to just say, ah, well, we'll sin too since everybody else does. And so in the political realm, we have got to be willing to tell the truth, uh, whether it's recognizing the good and something that somebody does on the other side of the aisle or criticizing something that somebody does or says on our own side of the aisle. And I always like to point out that Jesus was uh, deeply and inescapably political in that he claimed to be the king of the whole world, and that claim meant that uh, the, the Caesar, you know, uh, the guy in charge of all of Rome, the Roman Empire, was not the supreme leader of the world. So that was a powerfully political statement. But when Jesus made his statements, he combined truth and grace. And by truth, we mean he always spoke the truth about reality. You know, he called, he, he, I, he, you know, I called him like I see him, as it said. He, he always call, called it like he saw it. And then by grace, I mean that um, a Christian is going to want to have a gracious demeanor, not a sissy demeanor. Uh, no, that's not what I mean by grace. I mean that a Christian is somebody who knows that if it were not for the grace of God, there go I. And so we have no license to degrade and demean people with whom we disagree. Um, to, uh, you know, as the Bible said, you're, you're committing murder when you uh, call somebody a fool. And what he meant by that is when you assassinate somebody's character and for no good reason, or, uh, you know, uh, that's not good. So truth and grace together is what Jesus exemplified. Truth without grace makes us political bullies and jerks. We just go around hammering people with our, our truths. Uh, but grace without truth makes us political wimps and non-entities. We kind of back down and are not willing to stand up. So the neat trick is to combine truth and grace the way Jesus did. So that's uh, tip number six in the book, which is to love your neighbor. I love it. Now, Bruce, in the past, and when you've been on my show, you've been so encouraging of believers to adopt a position of uh, humble confidence in the in in the culture. And I, I guess maybe the question I have is how can we do that amidst the chaos of what we're going through right now? Yeah, you know, so it's hard for us to be confident, and I think it's because the ground beneath us has been shifting for years now. And even if we get a political victory here and there, uh, we're losing the social and cultural uh, battle, uh, that our society is drifting ever further away from God. Fewer and fewer people give legitimacy to the Bible's moral teaching, and public policy is, in one way or another, always an application of what a society believes about morality. And um, so there's actually a, a, an Italian philosopher named Augusto del Noce, he's dead now, but he wrote in the 20th century, and he argued that with the secularization process, you still have gods. It's just a different god. It's not the god of Jesus Christ. And he argued that the, um, the two gods in, in our era are 
sex and science. So he talks about eroticism and scientism. And eroticism or scientism is not the same as liking or, or affirming science. We all should affirm science. Science is just the study of God's world. But scientism is the belief that science is the only sure way to knowledge. By implication, religious ways of knowing don't count. And that since it's the only sure way to knowledge, it's the only cultural authority. Um, and so it persecutes religion indirectly by saying that religious ways of knowing, like the Bible, are illegitimate. Eroticism persecutes religion directly because it, it is fundamentally incompatible with the Jewish, Christian, and uh, Muslim faith. Uh, but we'll focus on Christianity right now, that um, the eroticism we see in the LGBTQIA plus movement is a full-on frontal assault against Christianity. Um, transgenderism is a, an over, as an ideology, is an overturning of the most basic aspects of reality. And the Bible teaches you can't flout reality forever with impunity. In other words, you can't go against the moral law forever as a society without taking a beating. Reality will give your society a good beating, and that's what's happening right now. But the good news is, as Christians, we can be confident and we can be humbly confident. Um, one of my favorite passages in the Bible <clears throat> I've mentioned on your show before is John's version of the Great Commission, John twenty twenty one, where uh, Jesus said, As the Father sent me, so I send you. Well, how did the Father send him? Well, he, uh, was, he spoke prophetic truth. He spoke the truth to power. Okay, so he had that confidence. Um, he was also sacrificial and humble. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. You know, he didn't really have a home of his own. Um, and so that kind of humble confidence, if Jesus Christ, King of the world, can be, could be confident without being arrogant, then how much more should we be confident without being arrogant? God hates arrogance. Cocky, narcissistic, arrogant people, God loathes, detests, and opposes them, the Bible says repeatedly. So we want to make sure that in the political realm that we're not arrogant, cocky, that, which means that we cannot take the cues of political talk shows on TV and on radio. Mm -hmm. Many of them are quite arrogant, quite, uh, and God opposes that. Uh, but we do have this humble confidence. We're confident because we know that Christ will return one day and will be vindicated. We're also humble because it's not we who will be returning to set the world to right. It's Jesus Christ himself. Mm -hmm. So that, that gives some perspective. Yeah, great answer, Bruce. It seems that in the dialogue, it's not very civil. It's one ambush upon another ambush. And if you do get in that situation with a, a friend or a coworker or someone that you disagree with, uh, any counsel as to how you maintain and hold that relationship together? Yeah, I think uh, one easy and good thing to do, and you can only do it if you've got some humility, if you're actually interested in other people as much or more than you're interested in yourself, is to just ask questions. Don't be nervous. Don't feel like you have to always immediately make your point and jack-slap somebody verbally. Uh, you don't. I mean, political conversation doesn't have to be a form of uh, verbal martial arts. I think a fun thing to do, and I, or I, maybe not fun, but <laughs> sometimes painful, actually, but a fascinating thing to do is when you find yourself disagreeing with someone, sit down and just ask questions and get to the bottom of why they believe what they believe. And if you listen long enough, most of the time somebody is then going to be willing to listen to you. But only if you've really listened and grasped what they believe. And one of the tests of whether you've listened 
is when you get ready to disagree with that person, can you state their case and what they believe in a way that they would agree and say, yes, you've understood me. That's exactly what I believe and why. And if you can do that and you've really understood it, then you can kind of appeal to them and try to persuade them and show them another way, and you can usually do it without animosity, um, I've found. Yeah. And then your friend feels like you really do care. You're just not sitting there waiting to throw your arrows in their direction. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, So I think we've got time for um, one more tip. I just am loving this, Bruce. So if you would just give us one more, that'd be terrific. Yeah. So the last tip is don't lose your mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah. So there's a great church father named Augustine or Augustine. You can pronounce it either way. And Augustine lived at a time when um, the empire of Rome was crumbling and losing its greatness, and Christians were persecuted severely. And since he lived in a time of Christians being persecuted, I think that we do also live in a time when we're at least facing a lot of resistance. And Augustine had prepared for his entire life, and toward the end of his life, when the crisis was at its peak, he was asked to write a defense of the Christian faith. Because the pagans in Rome argued that Christianity would destroy the Roman Empire. That was a weak, mamby-pamby faith that had no resources to guide a society. And Augustine wrote, uh, had a guy request that he write a treatise. And he answered that request with a thousand-page letter called The City of God. And in this book, he tells the Bible's narrative. The Bible tells a story about God and the world, and it's the true story of the whole world. And Augustine tells that story, and then he shows how the Roman story of the world, Roman history, was just a bit player in the grand sweep of of history. And he was able to um, persuade—when he tried to persuade the pagans, he he showed how the Bible told a better story of the world than the pagan narrative did. And he also was able to quote the pagans' top philosophers and thinkers and politicians and then show why those people were wrong. And all that to say, I think it would be a good thing if we in America could spend as much time kind of preparing and meditating on the Bible and studying political trends and just doing whatever we can to be knowledgeable so so that when the moment comes, when God gives us a moment, you know, for us it won't be a thousand-page letter to the Roman Empire, but for us it might be a coffee shop conversation, conversation with a neighbor, Mm-hmm. Um, a time to do a radio show with Bill Arnold. That's what I get to do. Exactly. That's uh, a lot of fun. When these moments happen, we want to be prepared. So let's not fritter all of our time away, and let's spend some of our time really digging in and trying to be prepared so that when God gives us an opportunity to speak a good word into a bad political moment, we'll be ready. Like always, Bruce, you're so wise. I love your new book. Thank you for sharing this time. Hey, it's been great to be on the show. The book is available. It's called How to Survive an Election Season at uh, Lifeway.com. Lifeway.com. It's a reasonably priced couple bucks. You can uh, get it and or get several copies and hand out to friends and family. Bruce, have a great rest of the day. Blessings to you and your family. Thank you. You bet. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more.
Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to be welcoming back to the program Dr. Rebecca Ree. She, of course, started her undergraduate at Yale, and then she went and got her uh, degree at Yale Divinity and then headed over to uh, Boston uh, University, where she got her uh, Ph.D. in, in uh, arts and religion. And she is with us once again. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you for having me again. Oh, I'm always fascinated with your writing, your style, uh, your delivery, everything. So I want to hear what's the latest entry in your blog. I think it has to do with a pan, which fascinates me because I like pans. Yep. Oh, you like pans. Well, this is all about, yes, it's about a frying pan. But um, I wanted to begin by reflecting a little bit on um, the relational fallout that we're um, experiencing as we're living together um, during COVID. Oh, yeah. And, and by, that, by that, I mean when family members are living on top of each other in close quarters, uh, sometimes little things can trigger very big responses. So let's say, for example, a husband eats the last brownie <laughs> that his wife was saving for herself. Right, exactly. And, and when she finds out, she looks at him and says, you know, our marriage has been plagued by trust issues from the very beginning, and I just don't know if we're going to make it. <laughs> oh, that's interesting that you're that you know someone that that's happened to. <laughs> so you have something a, I imagine you have a friend, something right? That, something like that. <laughs> but you know, all kidding aside, I've been thinking about how God sometimes uses small things to unearth profound issues that are going on between us and him. And mm-hmm. usually those profound issues are negative things. I've never really heard someone like say, you know, I just unearthed this profound and holy um, admiration that I have for God, and I'm so glad it came out. I, it's usually something negative. And unlike that poor husband with the brownie, um, God actually wants that unearthing process to happen. Um, he wants those deep and hidden things to be brought into the light. Um, so the story on that theme of unearthing um, that I want to tell today takes place in a store. And it's not a grocery store and it's not a big box store because who wants to go shopping there, right? Especially right. these days. But, you know, one of those smaller home decor stores that sells cool things like lamps and sneakers and Um, all kinds of things um, at a bargain. And I've learned that when you are pushing your little mini cart around one of those stores, if you see something that you like, you got to grab it because the merchandise turns over very fast in stores like that. And if you go back there the next day, it's not going to be there. Mm -hmm. So I went to one of these stores recently. People talk about retail therapy. I probably needed retail surgery at that point. (laughs) And (laughs) I needed to buy two frying pans because the ones that I had at home were completely dying. And while the store had some very nice frying pans, um, the two that I was interested in, they didn't match. And one had a single handle on it and one had two side grips instead of, a, a you know, so I, I couldn't find the, a pair that matched. And I was walking around and around the aisles. And I don't know if you get this feeling sometimes, but you ever feel like when you're going up and down those aisles that like literally brain cells are getting sucked out of your head as you're going up and down the aisles? And, um, uh, you know, these matching pans just did not magically appear no matter how many times I went up and down the aisle. So after a while, I just gave up. I bought the mismatched pair 
And I told myself to be a big girl and stop being so picky and be a grown up about the whole thing. So let's just like leave that as a sidebar part of the story for just a moment and go to a different setting. Um, and it'll all come together at the end, but oh, let's, let's sidebar that. Okay. So, okay. Um, over the summer before school started back in our school and our district happened to start back in brick and mortar. So kids are actually returning to a building. So before my son started to go back to school, we were doing um, an intensive in-home therapy program with him. And my son is eight years old and he's autistic. And he, at the, at the time, um, was having a lot of meltdowns and problems with adjusting to certain situations. And we really needed help with him. Um, and so the help we were getting was therapy every weekday, Monday through Friday, two hours each morning. And that's a grueling way to start the day because he and I would have our little routine in the morning and then the therapist would come over and they would do their little routine. But it was absolutely necessary. And I think COVID hits all children hard, but um, I think it hits special needs, needs kids especially hard because they lose all the services, all the routines, and all the activities that give their life meaning and help them progress from them, the deficits where they are. Um, so honestly, I'm amazed that my son was doing as well as he was, considering that his whole life, you know, came to pieces, and I really couldn't explain any of that to him. So here we were um, doing all this therapy, and truthfully, during this time, I was really having a hard time, too. Um, with the increased demand on me having my son at home, there was you know, my relationship with God really started to suffer. Um, we were no longer going to church in person. He no longer had his special needs Sunday school class anymore. Um, I wasn't having the same kind of quiet times at home that I had before when I could drop him off at school and come home and have some time to read scripture or journal or that kind of thing. And sort of in a slow and subtle way, I felt myself starting to drift away and from God. And I just couldn't seem to summon up enough energy or emotion to care. This is what was happening with me as my son is going through his own um, changes. And oddly enough, during this time, the one emotion that stayed constant with me was anger. <laughs> Somehow, I always found the wherewithal to be angry at God. And um, even though I could watch the news or hear stories around me of, you know, physical and emotional and financial chaos and struggle, and I knew I was being spared those things, um, I still felt that anger simmering beneath the surface all the time. And when a fellow believer would say, you know, give thanks to God about something, um, even if it was something that I had specifically prayed for for them, I felt that pang of anger come out. Mm. And um, even though I could totally see that all this therapy for my son was, of course, a gift from God, a direct provision, there was still this anger surrounding it. So, you know, I was thinking about this, and rather than psychoanalyze this problem, um, I thought it would be helpful to look at a woman in the scriptures who was quite justified in her anger whereas I felt like I was not justified in mine. So her story is found in First Kings, and 
she is a very poor widow, which, of course, at that time was like the lowest of the low on the social ladder in in that time. And um, God sends the, the mighty prophet Elijah to her during a season of drought um, in the country. And Elijah knows that the woman has been appointed by God to be his hostess for a while, but she doesn't know that. Um, when he comes upon her, she's Outside, she's gathering firewood, and she's minding her own business. And Elijah, you know, comes up to her, and he asks her for a cup of water, which a cup of water, you know, that seems like an innocent enough request. But then, just as she goes to get it, he tacks on, and oh, by the way, can you bring me something to eat, too? (laughs) Now, we've all had those moments where we're already overwhelmed. You know, and somebody skips into our situation and tosses another request on top of our heap, you know, and we're thinking, you know, seriously, seriously, are you for real? You know, can you not see what I am contending with already? And I kind of imagine her, you know, she's bent over, she's been gathering wood. I imagine her kind of straightening up and um, she takes a self-regulating breath. We try to remember to do. And she kind of lets Elijah have it. And I'm going to read directly from the scripture what she says. She says, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Um, strong words. These are very strong words. Oh, my. Yes. And if I were Elijah, you know that feeling you get when you dial the wrong number and you, you feel so embarrassed, you're like, oh, sorry, wrong number. You know, I'd be backing away. Wrong number. I'd be <laughs> apologizing. I'd be thinking myself a total fool for approaching her as if I had anything to give her on God's behalf. Um, and sometimes we may feel this, like we, we approach somebody because we have this vague feeling that God has wants to use us in a certain situation, and mm-hmm. then we get a response, and we're intimidated, and we start to back off. But, you know, Elijah's not a wuss. <laughs> he, instead of backing up, he ups the ante instead. And this is what he says. He says, do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterwards you may make one for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah and she and he and her household ate for many days. Okay, Rebecca, that's a wonderful uh, story that we're on, and I think we're going to take, take a very short pause and be right back. Dr. Rebecca Rhee is my guest. You can always head to RebeccaRhee.net, R-H-E-E. We'll be right back.
just get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. The sun is shining, come on, get happy. The Lord is waiting to take your hand. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. We're going to the promised land. We're heading across the river, wash your sins, way in the tide. It's all so peaceful on the other side. Forget your troubles and just get happy. You better Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Rebecca Rion. We're uh, learning about uh, a fascinating story involving Elijah and a woman who was pretty destitute, and yet she listened to what Elijah was asking. So a miracle happened, uh, Rebecca. Yep. So I find it interesting that though anger is what the widow might have been projecting on the surface, I, Elijah addresses the fear that's beneath it because the first words out of his mouth are, do not fear. And he says, Look, push through that fear, fulfill my obnoxious little request, because it's obnoxious, you know. I, I, I see that you just said to me that you're about to starve and die, but I want you to still make me my food first before <laughs> you make yourself anything. Mm-hmm. So fill my obnoxious little request, and it's meant to repair the breach between you and the Lord, and you'll see what the Lord does in response. Now, I'm not sure what spirit the widow obeys Elijah in, but she does, and a miracle happens. And happens and happens because ounce by ounce, her household her household is fed by the flour and the oil that do not run out. And something tells me that maybe this I call it like a piecemeal form of provision is how God had to minister to her at that point because her soul was in such a bad place that it might not have been able to handle like a dramatic flood of blessings. And that sometimes we're in, when we're in that same bad place that we may ask and want and look for some dramatic answer from God, but he's actually going to reply to us ounce by ounce because he knows that's what we need. So um, just, okay, so then we're going to sidebar that story, part of the story for a minute and go back to my frying pan. So um, I was in the same store sometime later. And I was shopping for sneakers for my son, of all things. And I passed the kitchen aisle with my little mini cart. And lo and behold, there sitting on a lower shelf is my frying pan. It's, one of, it's a twin of one of the ones I have at home. One of, one of the ones that I thought I would never see reappear in this kind of store again. And immediately there's a voice in my head. And the voice says, I am not a withholder. And because I had stumbled across this treasure that was as sacred and silly as a frying pan, I said, yes, Lord, yes, you are not a withholder. And I didn't even realize I was regarding you that way. And I began to see that sometimes that anger takes root when we believe that what we want or need is being withheld from us in however slight or subtle away. And the longer we feel deprived, the deeper that anger burrows in, and it becomes harder to see and harder to root out. So I you know, was reflecting and saying, you know, where did this idea of like God being a withholder kind of take root in my life? And um, immediately a memory um, pops up of 
me and my dad um, when I was in college. And um, when I was in college, I was very active in a campus ministry. And every once in a while, they would hold these weekend retreats that were a lot of fun and, you know, a good chance to grow. And so one of these retreats came up that cost $30 and I didn't quite have the money. So I decided to call home and ask for the money. And it was my dad who picked up the phone. And there's three things you need to know about my dad, which um, in in earlier writings, I've, I've shared that he was mentally unwell and he would often fly into these fits of, you know, really violent rage and cruelty. Um, Number two, he was in the ministry So he kind of led this double life, you know, projecting a a good Christian persona in public, but being another kind of person at home in private. And three, he was a very wealthy man. He worked in finance many years before he entered the ministry. So he was very wealthy. So in some ways, you never knew who you were going to get when you interacted with with my dad. And on that phone call that day, I got the enraged father. And not only did he deny my request for $30, but he totally dressed me down for even making the request. And he basically told me what a low life he thought I was and reflected back to me a version of myself that was so denigrating and so damaging. And when I think about this memory, the thing that burns the most is that he could have so easily given me the $30. Um, and in fact, I would think that a lot of parents would be super glad that their parents, that their kids are involved in a campus ministry during college instead of running around doing a lot of crazy stuff that college kids do, but not him. So, you know, in a grim kind of parody of the prophet Elijah, my, my dad kind of decided to feed himself first mm-hmm. on that phone call. He fed the fires of his anger the way he so often did. And I have to say, those fires never fully went out in him until he died a few years ago. So that was, um, you know, kind of one one experience that I had. Um, And when I think about, you know, that, that has to do with God being a withholder, because I remember this. I remember how dirty I felt after that conversation. And I remember how much of an impression it made on me that this is how fathers could be. And I think subconsciously I concluded, and this is how heavenly fathers can be. Um, So my guess is one of the reasons that I got so angry over the summer is because, you know, like that tired widow going over the same piece of ground again and again, trying to find some kind of sticks, um, I got tired of going over the same ground and again and again, trying to gather some kind of provision for my son. And in my weariness, I let certain suspicions about God creep into my life, like snakes drawing near to a campfire. Um, And I try to remind myself that whenever I'm tired and depleted, you know, those snakes can still be chased away, even if I'm not in a place like, you know, during the summer when I've kind of drifted from God, I can still ask for prayer and I can ask people to pray for me that the snakes would flee and that the oil and flour would flow. Um, And I really want to encourage your listeners, Bill. I really want to say that if God seems to have placed some kind of really obnoxious request or requirement in your path, um, something that touches on your fear and your anger, it might just be kind of the, the key that unlocks a miracle for you and that 
provision may start to flow in that piecemeal way if you go forward with that request. And it's going to flow not only to you, but those whom you love. And it's going to flow ounce by sacred ounce. Um, and I think it's going to show you that he's not just not a withholder, but he's a loving and generous father who loves to provide. And he knows just how to provide for you. So Rebecca, I would say. Yeah, go ahead. please. No, no. I would say. Go ahead. <laughs> So I would say, like, the bottom line, um, if you find, and especially, you know, again, when we're just living on top of each other and all kinds of things come bubbling to the surface, if you're dealing with some kind of simmering anger against God, like, that I noticed kept coming up, um, you know, maybe ask the Holy Spirit, you know, is there somewhere that I believe you're withholding from me? Like, get out a pencil and, and a notebook and like make a list. Is there something? Is there something I think you're withholding? Maybe there's more than one thing I think you're withholding from me, and it may be <clears throat> that there's a really valid experience or struggle that is feeding that false belief, a belief about God withholding. Just like I had that terrible experience with my dad withholding. There may be something in your life that is totally legitimate that is feeding your your image of God as a withholder. And then I'd say just as vitally, you need to get others involved to pray alongside you to chase those snakes away and get that provision flowing because it's nothing that we were we can do alone alone or were ever meant to do alone. So the question some of us might need to ask is, God, do I think you are withholding from me? And maybe ask uh, take these petitions right to him and say, I feel like you might be withholding this from me. Is that a fair mm-hmm. prayer to take to God? Well, I think, you know, the Psalms tell us to pour out our hearts before God. So whatever is in your heart, that is a fair prayer to, okay. to take to God just at, on the outright. But I would say one of, one of the things that's been very helpful to me over the years is not only to take that question to God, but to take that question to someone who I feel has a relationship with God that I can trust and share that Um, and share that, say, you know, I feel like God's withholding from me here, here, and here. And um, I've done that before and had them say, yeah, it would seem that way to me too, but I want to point out that he's actually really providing in these other places that you're not acknowledging right now. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, the, the flip side of that coin is you have, you know, a husband who is a good provider for you, or you have a church family that's always there for you. you know, there's someone who can stand out more objectively away from the problem and, and sort of see things and, and point out the places where God is providing for you so that your heart can soften a little bit and um, be in a better place to absorb what he might be trying to show you. Mm-hmm. So interesting, Rebecca. I always uh, enjoy when you come on the program, and I always learn so much. So thank you for always bringing such strong biblical application to everyday observations you make and the way God has uh, teaching you through simple objects that you can share with my listeners. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I'm always happy to talk about shopping. (laughs) You know, you've come to the right place. I like to shop, too. (laughs) Thanks, Rebecca. Oh, you're welcome. You bet. Rebecca Ree has been my guest. Go to RebeccaRee.net if you want to sign up to be on her blog. That's all for free. Uh, it's R-H-E-E is her last name. That's how you spell it. That's all the show we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for 
being such uh, great supporters of Faith Radio. It means the world to me. I hope you have a wonderful night. Time to ring the bell. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.